space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Temporal Trek. We're in Season 2 and we're in Episode 3. We are in Past Tense from DS9's Season 3 two-parter. We're going to take each episode individually, so this is going to be a two-part episode. And we're going to start at 2 minutes and 49 seconds on our LCAS system. Locating the past is our first priority. We see Cisco. He wakes up on the ground uh, along with Bashir, uh, being poked and prodded by two security guards who are with shotguns. And they're asking for logos, IDs. They uh, feign ignorance. They have no idea what's being called for. Uh, they have no idea what's going on. The security guards call them dims. They're dressed in pyjamas, which I always love a good reference to pyjamas when we get Starfleet uniforms. Uh, they say, uh, do you have a UAC card? Do you have a transit pass? You know, they're throwing all these terms at them and they just don't know until the word districts is mentioned. Cisco seems to just straight away know what's going on he he's heard the word districts he knows his history or at least this piece of history and you can kind of see from avery brooks performance that he's thrown off kilter at this point we are actually given the year 2024 but i'm not going to break off into our history segment as we've done in the past because actually we're in your future as you're listening to this episode the release date will be before 2024 so i will not be doing a history section for this part however along the way i might drop a few history hints or callbacks to history shall we say because under temporal prime directive i can't give anything away no spoilers here on this show other than the star trek episode we're watching of course but uh, 2024, we are given the year. And we end the scene at 4 minutes and 6 seconds as we see Dax materialised just below where Cisco and Bashir were in a subway station. We come back after the credit sequence and we are in at 5 minutes and 59 seconds. We see Dax still in the subway station. She's still there in uniform. Her spots are on full display. She is an alien. And she is found asleep at the bottom of the subway station by a guy. Now, this man, he leans in and, you know, perhaps if you see someone unconscious on the floor, you might get the reaction that you might want to check for their pulse, perhaps place two fingers on their neck, you know, something like that. This guy leans in and grabs her by the neck. He really gets in close. It's very disconcerting to see. Very weird blocking. And there's something just really weird to see this guy just you know, go straight up to a stranger who's lying on the floor and just get just get into her personal space so quickly. He's touching her and it, it, it just doesn't feel right. Whether that's a fault of the production and the way this was filmed or whether this is a character flaw... You don't quite know yet, but it's just so full in. Very, very weird. The guy, although seems genuine, however, he does talk about, you know, did you get jacked? Did you get mugged? 
Dax is sort of just waking out of her days, so she doesn't quite react straight away and, and agrees with what he said, but she doesn't also disillusion what he's saying. Um, he says, you know, did they get your credit chips? Have, you know, have they taken your ID? This sort of thing. Straight away, Dax is now more into the situation. I think she realizes what's going on. She maybe has seen the clothes. Something's not quite right in the terminology he's using. And perhaps she's reacting to this just like, uh, you know, the misguided away emission. You know, she's got lost in the transport, so to speak. Uh, she's straight into it and she plays along with the lingo. She doesn't correct him. She just goes with it. Um, yes, she's been mugged. You know, she's still got her comm badge, which she refers to as a brooch. You know, they didn't take this away. Oh, thank goodness. And this guy just you know, sort of lifts her over to a nearby step, places her down and says, Hi, I'm Chris Brinner. Doesn't really say anything, but he seems to expect a response when he says that name. He offers that she uses his interface terminal to order a new ID, uh, to get some more credit chips. You know, his office is just around the corner. He's full on trying to win Dax into doing what he's saying. Now, I know I'm watching this with 2020 eyes and also on the fact that I'm from the 24th century too. Uh, looking back on a 1990s episode of Star Trek, but it does seem odd. The man is just too eager to please. He's too nice. There's something just weird about how he approaches this whole situation. First, he asks for a name. She says Dax. And he gives the, oh, it's a pretty name. You know, it's a flirty way of dealing with someone you literally just met in the few seconds that you pulled her to uh, one side and placed her on a step. He says, is that Dutch? Now, this is one of my history callbacks, my uh, callouts. Dax is not a Dutch name in any shape or form and if this man was more educated perhaps he would know uh, but uh, Dax is actually an old English surname uh, and it means someone with a duck-like gait uh, from Somerset uh, it's normally abbreviated to Dukes uh, so D-U-C-K-X uh, sometimes Dax sometimes Dakes uh, but uh, it is from the Somerset region of England so nothing to do with the Dutch uh, but she's at least from Somerset, so it's all right, isn't it? It is flirty, and, you know, I know that, oh, it's a pretty name, is a bit of a line. So, again, it just throws me off not liking this character. Chris Brinner just, I don't know, there's something weird about the guy. One thing I am cl glad, though, does come back into fashion is the puffy shoulder, uh, double-breasted look blazer. I'm really glad that it comes back. Um, I really do miss that from the 1990s, and I'm just so glad it's here to stay. Although, weirdly, he's only buttoned it in one button. So, very odd choice. There's also a bit of a, a early David Bowie, uh, White Duke look about him. Uh, if you ever go back to watch the episode, the sort of quiff, the, the, the very thin look of the man, the way that the suit is, uh, is pressed, uh, it's it does look a bit David Bowie-like, right? It's not just me, right? He then ends the conversation saying it's not every day you get to save a damsel in distress. He's got a bit of a white saviour complex. And again, I know I shouldn't really be judging him based on a different morality to what the 1990s were. But, ew. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the feeling I get of this character the whole way through is, ew. 
as they walk out of the uh, underground terminal, he's also holding her arm in what looks to be a very vice-like grip. He's not going to let this one go. And, ew. <laughs> just can't escape it. Something just isn't right about this guy. We end that scene at 7 minutes and 29 seconds. Full on. Ew. We come back at 8 minutes 45 seconds and Cisco and Bashir enter the sanctuary. Uh, Bashir's sort of saying that they're a bit on edge, that they're suffering from something called transporter shock. Uh, now, from the 24th century, you know, that's virtually unheard of these days, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something to look out for. And, uh, you know, if you need support, I will be including uh, several subspace links on where you can get treatment for your transporter shock. For everyone else, it's just a term. Anyway, anyway, we are actually in San Francisco. We established this because the characters have seen the Golden Gate Bridge and they say that they've had their comm badges stolen. But Cisco doesn't really seem to be all that surprised by that. Um, very un-Star Trek-like. Sometimes when things like this, you know, people mug you, there's something odd. As we saw in our previous episode in Enterprise, you know, T'Pol was disgusted at the low levels that Loomis would go to. And Cisco doesn't seem all that surprised that he got mugged. It's almost like he knows what time period he's in already. They know that it's the 21st century, because they've been told it's 2024. Bashir admits that it's not his strong point. Now, I'm not going to go into further DS9 spoilers here, because we are only dealing with this time period. But knowing what I know about Bashir, does he really have any weak points in his education? We'll have to see. But he said that the reason it's not his strong point is that it was far too depressing. Uh, it's a bit of an odd statement, given that studying any part of history, I would argue, it can be quite depressing. Uh, you know, we've been no stranger to very, very sad stories here on the Temple Trek podcast. And this particular one was that upsetting? Very odd. We get possibly one of the most iconic sentences read out uh, in this upcoming scene where Cisco explains to Bashir what this time period is that there's overcrowding in these districts that it was an ugly mistake it paves the way for the world that they eventually know in the 24th century and that these people in the district sanctuary aren't criminals because criminals weren't allowed in the sanctuary these are just people without places to live or jobs and it's just one of those powerful moments that we're going to get a lot of in these episodes. And I think it's one of the reasons why this episode, not to tip my hand on where this falls on my judgment ratings and criteria, but why this episode is held up so often as one of the best in Deep Space Nine. We go over to Dax, who's now in Brenner's office. She's sat at this very clunky tech piece of equipment um, in a huge office. There's a piece of artwork in one corner, there's a potted plant in another, there's a huge open window, but there's just tons of empty space. When you've seen the episode as many times as I have for this research, the disparity between the size of that office and the sanctuary district, where you see so little space, so little room, people just sleeping on the streets outside because there's no room in the buildings nearby... It makes you hate that Chris Briner character so much more. He lives in utter privilege, even down 
to the size of where he is and where he works. The technology is also something I want to touch on as well, and I probably will touch on it throughout this episode as well. Um, the lack of mobile phones. Um, I've been talking to people in 2020 quite a lot, and um, I think everyone seems to have a mobile phone. Nobody seems to have any chunky terminals that are uh, used to get on the net. Um, no one seems to talk about the net, so uh, you know, forgive me, my, my history is probably a little bit rusty on this. Not like uh, Bashir in any way, you know, I did research my history, but I seem to remember everyone having phoned in this era. Very strange. Dax has somehow fooled the net and the system, uh, so clearly whatever capture technology they've got uh, in 2024 is good against robots, but not against aliens. We now get the spots and tattoo discussion. It just gets creepier. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Brynna um, starts talking about her tattoos that, um, you know, he guesses that these were tattoos done in Japan and Dax doesn't correct him, which is a nice little callback to previous episodes that we've seen where the, the characters don't correct the judgments that the past characters make you know let them make up their own mind it's a much easier way of uh, holding back on the temporal prime directive uh, but it's just like kirk and edith keeler you know she she used to guess so many different things about him it's just like when data went back to the 19th century and everyone thought he was a frenchman you just don't correct the people you meet in a time travel adventure people see what they want now that's a point that obviously yes we've gone through in the temporal trek but seems to have a new layer now watching these episodes. People see what they want. They make up their own narratives. Throughout this episode, and we're going to kind of probably keep coming back to this point quite a lot over the next two episodes, and it's the idea that people will only look at the narrative that is agreeable to them, that makes sense to them. Something that doesn't fit with that they can easily ignore and uh, I think you know where I'm going to go with this um, we go on in the conversation with Maori tattoos apparently Chris Brenner back in the 90s got a Maori tattoo that he instantly regretted and I had to get it removed you know how it is to me watching this episode to this modern sensibility that I've kind of picked up from talking to some of your contemporaries that kind of sounded like a mention of cultural appropriation and that, you know, he would have got rid of the tattoo because it wasn't correct to do so. However, because this is written in the 90s, and that was certainly not something that was as prevalent in the conversation, he got it removed because he wanted to conform to the rest of society. He got it removed because he wanted to be like the upper class people, the elites, he didn't get rid of it because it was something bad, something to get rid of because it would insult the culture that he'd taken it from. He just did it because he wanted to fit in with everybody else. He wanted to fit his narrative to their way of life. And it's really weird how that was an act of conformity on his part, selling out, as he says in the scene. Yet the removal of a tattoo now that has significance for another culture as a form of conformity would be a good thing because you're removing it to not offend people. 
But back then, it's seen as a conformity as a bad thing, that you are doing it to just be like a certain class of people. There doesn't seem to be much morality behind his decision. We also come back to, again, him name-dropping himself. Chris Brenner? You know? You know who I am? You know? He seems a little offended that Dax doesn't know who he is. And he gets on to saying that, you know, he should really get on to these public relations people about that. So there's not any Twitter in this timeline. Very, very strange. Or maybe that is his public relations people. Maybe. We move back over to Cisco and Bashir, being documented, scanned, photographed, and put into the safe tech system. There's still commercial pop-ups in this timeline, so wherever we are, uh, it apparently is no different to any other piece of technology that I have seen from the 2020s. The computer talks to you, just like uh, an Alexa, and it turns out that they have no record, no ID, no money, and they're dressed like clowns just as the security guard says. He uh, passes them some paper forms to fill out on clipboards. Uh, he lists a sort of set of terms, you know, if you don't understand these, an interpreter will be provided. If you can't read, another person will explain them, read them to you. And he, he just lists out these um, things that he's clearly memorized and has had to say a million times before. But in the next breath, follows it up with, I really don't care, don't come to me with a problem. Just leave me alone and go and shut up and sit down. It's somebody else's problem. And just in those few sentences, we get really the sense of where we're coming now already. It's somebody else's problem. You put it off. You know, here's what you're expected to do. Sit up, sit down, shut up. Just get on with it. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And we end at 14 minutes and 40 seconds. We come back at 15 minutes and 35 seconds. Having filled out the forms, Cisco is sitting down in a crowd of people. And there's a lot of people very close by. Throughout all of these episodes, there is so much overcrowding, so many people in a close, confined area. It, it come, comes back to the same thing I said in the last episode. There's an anxiety now to close contact with large groups of people coming out of the pandemic, coming out of COVID, seeing that many people <laughs> stuffed into a room. It's really weird to see it. And it's, you know, it's only been a few months that we've been in lockdown. And just seeing it on TV in an episode I've watched a million times before, and this now starts to feel like a new way of watching things. There's someone who's clearly suffering some sort of mental illness, and he's playing around with this sort of pen, this... A uh, little doodad pen doesn't seem to be marking Cisco, but he's sort of dragging it along softly on his arm, and he's just gently doing it. And there's a beautiful moment where Cisco just grabs him just firmly and gently by the hand and moves his hand away. Doesn't get angry with him, doesn't confront him, doesn't try to you know start a fight over it. Um, perhaps something that would be uh, something that maybe Archer would have responded very differently to or Janeway, or Picard, or Kirk. But he just moves the hand aside, and the guy with the pen just moves it to a lady next to him, who also seems to be visibly suffering in some way. He starts to guide the pen on her hand, and as if he is drawing a tattoo on her skin, and she seems to genuinely love it. She smiles at him, and it, it's a just a really side moment for two background extra characters. And the actors are just giving you this really nice backstory. And I would love to know what that was all about, but but sadly, there's just too much in the episode to discuss. Bashir comes back, starts to complain. As a doctor, you know, this line hasn't moved for three hours. You know, why aren't we getting seen to? We gave our forms in. What's going on? The security guard just turns around and says, hey, 
two words for you. Plenty of overtime. Bashir says, that's three words. And the security guard just comes back and says, hey, you're not so dim after all. Cisco looks across the room, only to see a clock with a full date written for us. Friday, August 30th, 2024. He's starting to put it together. This whole time, he's looked like he knows what history is and what is going to happen, and now it seems like it's all slotted together for him. It does mention that the temperature outside is 15 degrees Celsius, so it appears that America has in some way shifted over to the metric system. Um, And um, as a UK resident, uh, I want to welcome them over. It's the correct way of doing things. It's the only way you should be doing things. Uh, And, um, you know, good on you. Well done. But this date is very significant for Cisco. It is the date of the Bell Riots, the most violent civil rights disturbance of the 21st century. Bashir is saying that, you know, these people are mentally ill, they need treatment, and Cisco's saying they're not going to get it. You know, this, this Bell Riots is a serious issue. It's going to tear the whole districts apart. And it's a great little device in the storytelling for both this episode and the second part as well, as it gives us our literal ticking clock. We have a reason for the characters to get out of here by a set time. The danger with time travel is there doesn't seem to be any time you have to worry about. There is no um, threat. Because you've got the time travel, you could take as long as you want. This ticking clock is very ominous, and I think it's one of the better times where we've had an urgency to a time travel mission. We learn that hundreds die, and Bashir uh, says that Starfleet's temporal displacement policy uh, sounds good in the classroom, but knowing that hundreds are going to die seems like a bad thing. You know, you want to get involved, you want to stop that. And Cisco can only say that it is one of the most watershed events of, of history, Gabriel Bell becomes a national hero because of him certain hostages that will be taken in the crisis won't die and that proves to the outside world that these people are so put upon and so downtrodden that they need to be heard these are good people they just need a chance i will say that bashir calls it the temporal displacement policy i think he knows that it is the temporal prime directive but i'll let him off for this one we're getting some more lingo Cisco and Bashir finally get processed, and they are called gimmies, uh, people who are actually looking for help. Dims are the reference to people who are suffering some sort of mental illness and should be in a hospital. Again, listening to it with my 2020 ears on, looking back on a 1990s episode, the idea that mental illness, or at least the way we deal with mental illness, has not only not improved in that time, but has now become a slang term and is derogatory. It's a bit disheartening. It's almost anti-Star Trek for me. Um, you, you get this sense that uh, things didn't get better straight away. It's disheartening to hear people refer to mental illness in such a, a horrid way, calling them dim uh, as if they are less, they are lesser uh, as humans. And there is something, again, odd about watching this from the 2020s and seeing there's no phones. Just seeing there's nothing there. Now, you could argue that because they're in the districts, that no one in the district uh, earns enough to have a phone. So there wouldn't be, you know, your smart devices and things like this. Uh, But there are so many problems that could potentially be solved by having a phone in your pocket that just doesn't enter into this episode. 
the person processing the lady uh, is, mentions that you know the economy the way it is that there just aren't any jobs to give you so they could be a long wait as they're being processed it did make me think that you know if this were our timeline and the pandemic hit in 2020 straight into 2021 the knock-on effect of businesses perhaps going under because they couldn't support themselves that perhaps relief packages didn't get rolled out fast enough that uh, perhaps there aren't enough jobs by 2024 that it's very possible regardless of whatever leadership was in any country that this could be a future we might see mass unemployment people unable to gain jobs to feed themselves to have access to a home uh, decent facilities a lot of people look at this episode at least looked at it just a year ago and thought that this would be you know the world if president trump had won his second term i'm not saying that just because joe biden is president that magically uh, that wouldn't happen that because you know it's not trump therefore it's not possible you know we've seen a pandemic a pandemic is not the fault of a particular president or government the reaction to a pandemic is the fault of a particular government and leader but the impact that we could be seeing for the next few years based on covid you could easily see the circumstances for a sanctuary district popping up near you as being a real possibility in our future and that is worrying there was something that was very prescient however the security guards they are warned by the lady processing them that their budgets were cut once again they're overworked and underpaid now if that's not everybody's life right these days um, but the fact that it's security guards and they are warned not to go near security guards given the black lives matter given the open hostility that there is in america at least uh, between the police and the black community that line really resonated in this watch through and it's something that i don't think will ever not be relevant sadly for quite some time when watching this episode i hope it's not i hope that by 2024 there is serious change you know it's unlikely in three years but i really hope that this line becomes less relevant as time goes on but it's kind of hard to see how it wouldn't be they're also warned about the ghosts ghosts are other residents who prey on the vulnerable inside the sanctuary and this is another worrying idea throughout the episode i've said that there is uh, an unwillingness to help people because it doesn't fit your narrative there's also this idea of opportunism that greed and those who would seek to profit on other people's misfortune isn't necessarily something that just comes from class it also comes from just people wanting to have things for themselves from just pure basic greed we get back to dax who's been set up in a nice hotel and she gets invited to a party by this chris brenner guy and she just you know wants to get on with finding her friends she just wants to be let go you know go away man you know stop being so disgusting and horrible and just just leave her alone man you know ew cisco and bashir can't find anywhere to sleep 
Uh, they go from house to house. They are warned by several guys who are hanging outside the building, almost like their own security, their private security. Uh, but they are just residents themselves. Bashir said, you know, there's there's no need for any of this. And we get another one of the great speeches in all of these episodes. You know, there there are people on the streets, he said, that could be cured with the right kind of treatment, even in that era, that these problems exist and could be easily fixed. And Cisco says that, you know, to them, these problems are so enormous that they seem impossible to solve. And they've just simply given up. And it comes back to that idea that just because presidents change, just because reforms change, because things may work out in the short term, sometimes problems are so difficult and unforeseen circumstances hit you that things could go bad so much that things go bad so quickly and it's not necessarily your fault it actually puts me in mind of another star trek episode where we have picard saying to data that it is possible to go through life making no mistakes and still lose that's life cisco follows this up by saying that people causing others to suffer because you hate them is terrible but causing people to suffer because you've just forgotten how to care is just hard to understand. And we still come back to this idea that you can't understand a narrative that doesn't fit your way of thinking. We've got the narrative of that time period. We have the elites in Chris Brenner and, as we're about to find out, his friends. We have the world who've ignored the sanctuary districts. But we've also got the narrative of the Starfleet officers who are going back in time, who just simply can't wrap their heads around a world where people don't care. It causes Bashir to question that, you know, if things got worse, if disaster struck and something terrible were to happen to the Federation, if things weren't to go the right way every time, are they any different from the Cardassians, the Romulans or any other species? Would they stand by their principles? Cisco just simply refers to the fact that he's a Starfleet officer and it's his job to make sure that that just never happens. And if ever there was a piece of evidence as to why Star Trek Discovery, certainly season three that we've just had, just finished as I'm recording this, was ever still part of the Star Trek universe, it's that line. When you see Michael Burnham, when you see the crew of the Discovery trying to put the Federation back together again after the burn, sorry, spoilers, you can really see where that's coming from. It's that same logic. It's the fact that you stick by your principles no matter how hard things get. And it's one of the reasons why I like Star Trek. Cisco is adamant. Don't interfere with anything, even when they see a mugging happening on the street and a couple of ghosts. And that ends at 26 minutes, 19 seconds. We come back at 27 minutes and 2 seconds. Both Cisco and Bashir have been sleeping in the streets. Cisco comes back with a bowl of what looks like scrambled eggs and a bit of toast, and that's their breakfast. Bashir says that he's never going to complain about the Cardassian beds on the space station. Gonna have to remember that one and see that if after this episode he actually lives up to that bargain. They need to find a way to escape, and they realise that if they could get onto the roof, they could probably get a better lay of the land. They go back to one of the buildings they tried to find shelter in, and they go back to the security guards, the residents who are acting as security for that area. They swap clothes with them. Um, why exactly someone wants their uniforms, which look much thinner than the coats that they're wearing, 
is a bit odd for me to understand, but at least they now fit in. And it definitely puts you in mind of Kirk and Spock back in the 1930s, meeting Edith Keeler, stealing their clothes. Uh, only, at least this time, they didn't steal anything. They traded for it. There's no uh, rice picker incidents in this episode. They get entry into the building, they work their way up, and we start to meet a new character, a father standing over his son. We haven't learned his name yet in this scene, but his son Danny has been beaten by the ghosts. Now, presumably, he was the person beaten by the ghosts that we just saw in the mugging. Uh, his wounds are fresh, it's just happened, so it could be that way, but it's never explicitly said in the episode. So it would have been perhaps nice to see. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way of saying it. But it would have been interesting to at least have that dynamic from Danny, who is the boy who was attacked. And they mention that you know, he was attacked by that specific ghost. It would have added some more tension. Whether they would have had time to do it in an already densely packed episode. But it would have added another dimension to that character being around the ghost that we are going to meet in the future. The father of Danny uh, says that we need to get organized, we need to make people see, and Cisco and Bashir just say, look, we just want to stay out of it. You know, they're trying to find find a way out, they are trying to escape, they don't want to even get involved. And at this point, they've got no reason to. We cut to Dax, who is at the party that she was invited to. And here we see some real elitism. Um they start talking about pan-Caribbean governments and uh, how uh, Chris Brenner just got back from Christchurch in New Zealand. Uh, he was skiing there. Now, uh, with the COVID crisis, Christchurch and New Zealand did probably the best in the whole world. I don't know if that's uh, backed up by the stats, but certainly the public perception, and we're getting into that in this episode, the public perception of New Zealand's handling of the crisis was so vastly better than anywhere else that no wonder people get to travel to New Zealand and go skiing. Much nicer over there. We also get mentions of student protests in France. Well, um, speaking as a UK resident, it's almost every year we hear about uh, some sort of protest in France. So again, pretty easy bet that 2024 will have some sort of uh, student uprising at some point. We also get a mention of neo-Trotskyists now. Uh, from 2020, we don't actually have a party that would self-identify as neo-Trotskyists, but um, who knows? Three years is a long time. And one of my favourite lines, Europe is falling apart. Well, we don't have to worry about that here in the UK. Uh, we've never had a problem with Europe, and uh, we never will. There we go. Jadzia uh, calls them out on it and says, you know, well, you're going to have problems here in the US. You know, Don't feel that you're any better. Now, knowing we just came out of the uh, Trump era, it's interesting to think about that one. You know, America has just emerged from a very turbulent time. It just had its uh, president denying the results of an election, the storming of Capitol Hill. It's very, very weird to now hear a 1990s American TV show saying that America has got it pretty good at this point. Yeah, that missed the mark a little bit, didn't it? Jadzia calling them out, uh, Chris Brenner sort of just waves aside and says, oh, you'll have to forgive Jadzia's cynicism. She was mugged the other day. He's talking for her. Ew. 
one of the uh, rich elitists uh, says that uh, sanctuary districts keep those people off the streets. Them and us. Oh, yeah. There we go. Them and us. The narrative you have disassociated yourself as being a person just like those people in the sanctuary districts. We are still getting this idea of a narrative that there are the better-offs and there are the non-people. Things don't fit your worldview, so you just don't see it. However, Dax, upon hearing about the sanctuary, now starts to think maybe Bashir and Sisko are in there. If they didn't have the IDs just as she did, they probably ended up in there. They need to find the sanctuary records, but they're not posted on the net. We go back to Bashir and Sisko. Bashir makes another promise that he's not going to complain about all of the queues for food at the replomat on Deep Space Nine as well. So again, I'm going to hold him to that one. There's an attack in the food line. There's plenty of double fist punches, so Kirk would be very proud. And the guys get into a fight with the ghosts over something as simple as a food card. And then someone emerges from the crowd. Someone who was faceless and then steps into the fight when nobody asked him to. When someone had the real empathy to see someone else in trouble and wanted to stand up and be counted. A faceless hero who becomes very important. And that is the real Gabriel Bell. Unfortunately, because of the fight, he gets stabbed and is killed there in the streets. They run and hide. Sisko and Bashir try to help him, but they have to leave too. So the ghosts are in one direction, Sisko and Bashir go in the other, and this faceless hero, this unknown person, dies on his own in the streets. But now Sisko knows there's a problem. He took the food card from Gabriel Bell and realises the name on the food card and says, We have to save the hostages that will be taken in the Bell Riots. We now have to interfere. We end at 37 minutes and 56 seconds. We come back at 40 minutes and 4 seconds. Sisko and Bashir agree to join with the father of Danny in his rally. We now learn his name and it is Webb. His surname is Webb. He says we want to hold a peaceful rally. We want to look our best. So Webb now wants to hold a peaceful rally. He says we want to look our best. We have to show them that we are not derelicts. You know, get your families, bring the children. He wants to rally the people into some sort of peaceful protest. Unfortunately, he's probably not going to get what he wants. We're back at Dax, and she's managed to track them down through Chris Brenner's connections, and he confirms that they are in the Sanctuary District. He says, don't worry, those places give them food and a place to stay. And it's, it just points out the ignorance of his privilege that he has bought into the party line, hook, line, and sinker. Dax, quite rightly, just points out the obvious. Well, if that were the case, why is there a giant wall around these districts? What have they got to hide? It's it's right there, plain as, plain as the nose on their faces, and no one questions it. And I don't think I could get past talking about having walls around things without having to mention that famous policy. The idea of putting up a wall along a border between America and Mexico that was put forward by a particular president of the United States. Sorry. <laughs> but um, watching this episode after that is 
difficult to process. We knew about this in the 90s, and people still fell for that rhetoric. There we go. The guard from earlier uh, is attacked, and a gun is taken from him. Cisco wrestles it away from one of the uh, protesters as violence starts to break out on the streets as one of the guards attacks a dim. They save the guard's life, they drag him back to the processing area, and the riot continues. There's now a hostage situation, and we see the lead ghost again, B.C. We finally learn his name. He talks to Cisco and calls him the new boy. Now there's lots of charged areas in that again. It's a very dense episode, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but the idea of calling a black man boy... Ooh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> that's not comfortable at all. Cisco says, I'm not the new boy. I am Gabriel Bell. And Cisco now takes on the mantle of the faceless hero. And we stop at 44 minutes and 20 seconds. And we're going to end there. This has been part one of Past Tense. I'm going to hold off my ratings criteria till the second part and do them all together. There's just so much to cover in these episodes. I don't want to miss a thing, and I hope that I've done some justice to some of the problems and some of the best bits of this episode. So join me next time as we go to Past Tense Part 2, and we will be starting at zero minutes and zero seconds. As always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in the next time stream. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at rider underscore coattail, or contact me directly at hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore hitch underscore writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream. Ew. 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 Ew.